Good morning, good evening, and good day. You're listening to Drama Buds, an anima podcast. So hello everyone, welcome to today's episode of Drama Buds. It's a different one today. I'm not dissecting any particular drama. I'm dissecting dating shows, which, you know, is a a brave choice. But trust me, I have a lot to say. Now, I've seen a lot of Korean variety shows, but usually I see the ones with a fixed cast of comedians, actors, and idols, or sometimes those with guests that show, you know, a day in their lives, like, uh, I live alone, or omniscient in- interfering view. I don't know what, what the official title is. But yeah, usually those kinds of shows. And I've also watched K-pop survival shows, so yeah, that's a reality show. But this was the first time that I watched a Korean dating show. Now, I've been hearing the buzz about all these dating shows for the past year, but I only decided to check out Singles Inferno 2 because, you know, might as well. I missed out on the hype for the first season, might as well check the second season out. And then when I finished that, that led me to Transit Love slash Exchange 2, which I remember caused a huge buzz in Korea while it was airing. So today, I just want to talk about these two Korean dating shows that I've watched, their premises, the storytelling in the show, some of the main storylines that I have something to say about, and their strengths and weaknesses. Because I felt like there was one that was significantly more entertaining than the other one, but I wanted to understand why I thought so. And you may think it's weird that I talk about these quote-unquote reality shows like they're the K-dramas that I've watched. But to be honest, they kind of are. Because yes, the people here are real people. They're not fictional characters. We should not be interacting with them like they're actors portraying a fictional character on a show. They're kind of portraying their supposed true selves there. But you know, applying a little bit of critical thinking, the way they're presented to us is very carefully curated and edited to tell a story. I mean, starting from even just casting these people, the producers and writers were already trying to craft stories for them or looking for certain images, certain backstories, certain archetypes and stories that they could create for them. And they were thinking of how they could present all of this to the viewers in the show. And then during the filming itself, the participants are prompted to do things, to say things, to interact with each other in a certain way to push forward those stories that that they're thinking of. I mean, if we were given uncut CCTV footage, then yeah, maybe, sure, that's a reality show. But really, all of the footage that they have is edited to weave a story that will keep the viewers engaged, to push a certain narrative. So it's fun to think of that narrative. Was it effectively entertaining or effectively realistic enough that we didn't feel the producers manipulating the participants' actions and manipulating the editing itself? Because I think a good reality show is when it effectively sells authenticity. When you don't feel or you don't know when something is scripted or when it's genuine. I think it's really impressive when they're able to blur the line between reality and TV so well. And so I do have to talk a little bit about Terrace House, the Japanese reality show that for me did that the best. Like I really was so engaged with that show, not because it was dramatic, but because I thought it was so real. Until, you know, the curtains were pulled back and everything shattered and it wasn't. But more on that later.
Okay, first, we're gonna talk about Singles Inferno 2. Now, I cannot speak about the first season because I didn't watch it. I've heard some comments say, yeah, they improved on the format, they improved on when to add the participants so that it didn't feel like it was a complete waste for them to come in so late because they didn't affect any of the storylines. Sure, yeah. I've also heard some people say that the participants in the first season were much more interesting and that they were just copying some of the archetypes and the storylines from the first season. Yada, yada, yada. I can't. I can't say anything about it. I don't know. So the setup of Singles Inferno is that there are six pairs of men and women that are placed on an island that we call Inferno for 10 days. They're not allowed to talk about their age or their jobs because, you know, people often make dating decisions just based on someone's age or jobs. And they can only attract each other through their natural charms and their chemistry with each other. They can only talk about those things when they're on paradise. So every day, they're allowed to choose with whom they go to paradise. And sometimes they have to match with each other, like the guy chooses the girl, the girl chooses the same guy. Or sometimes it's a unilateral choice that's given as a prize for a game or a, a benefit for coming in late to the island. They also have these panelists who talk about the interactions of the participants. Now, you'd think with the promo material of the show, you know, with all the bikini bodies and shirtless men, and of course, it's a hot, deserted island, you'd think that this is, this is Western. This is American reality TV. And, you know, because it's produced by Netflix and not entirely by just Koreans, it can go there. It, it could go there. But instead, you know, the, the Korean twist on it is that it takes these extremely attractive people and doesn't force them to be raunchy or catty with each other for the sake of drama. Like, yes, people are flirting. People can be attracted to more than one person at a time or more than one person is attracted to them. But their interactions with each other, especially of the same sex, uh, they're so friendly. They're so encouraging. Uh, the season two cast especially seems so close behind the scenes. They were so cute like the few days after the show ended because they could finally show how friendly they are with each other. It's probably because there was truly nothing to do on that island. And so they just got close because there was nothing to do but talk to each other and read books. And although I like the cast, and while I was watching it, I was really engaged, in hindsight, I realized that it's boring. And you can feel the producers and the editors pushing certain narratives all throughout the show's run. Like, you can feel that, you know, there are main characters and supporting characters here. First of all, though, we have to talk about the fact that they couldn't force some people to be given a story. Sejong was one of the starting cast, but no one was interested in her. Some guys said they were attracted to her, that she was the first one who caught their eye, but no one ever made a move on her. And when you're sidelined like that on a dating show, the only way to get a story on the show is to antagonize other participants. But that's not what the show is about. She couldn't win any game to get a chance to go to paradise, and it's not like the producers could tell her competitor to just lose on purpose. Because, you know, they could still get a story out of Sejong losing, and who was it? Minsu winning. God, Minsu. <laughs> you know, like, they couldn't force it. They couldn't do anything with her, and so she really just sat there doing nothing, talking to no one. And then there were the contestants that stuck to a story way too early. I am talking about Yungje and Soon. I know they're supposed to be the wholesome, established couple that can't be broken up, but because of them, Soe almost became the most annoying participant on the show. Basically, okay, in K-drama terms, 
Soi is the pitiful second female lead who gives her all to only one person. And at some point, it's just annoying. Because she was crying. She was crying over this guy who she just met three days ago. Someone she barely knows with whom barely anything has happened. Thank God that they salvaged her character, her image when Sejun arrived. And he was genuinely the funniest person on the show. And he actually was interested in her. Like, thank God that happened. And it's, it's apparently not scripted, so good for them. He liked her, and he made her feel liked. And after this long arc where she was just pining after a guy who was in the only, you know, quote-unquote, established relationship in the show, it felt like a true K-drama. She got a K-drama story, so good for her. Now, the main source of drama on the show, the main plotline of this show, involved Sulki and Jinyoung. First of all, I gotta do this for my girl Sulki. People complained that Sulki got too much screen time compared to the other girls. But is it her fault that three men were attracted to her? If people found her personality or her appearance boring compared to Sejong and Nadine, who were, you know, fan favorites who didn't get as much attention as her, that's not her problem. That's not her fault. And, you know, she's friends with all the girls. She respectfully shut Dongwoo down when she decided that she really was not interested in him. She has done nothing wrong and she was just being herself all throughout. No Sulgi hate in this household. Maybe in the beginning I thought I would hate her, but no, no, no Sulgi hate here. Now Jin Yong, Jin Yong is the typical bad boy, misunderstood bad boy with some depth. But compared to the initial guys who came in, he was... Finally, finally, the participant that brought some personality to these guys. Because these guys were so boring. Except for Hanbin. Hanbin was the only starting guy who had some personality. But in terms of dating, he, he was a loser immediately. And yeah, Sejun, I mentioned him. Now for Jin Yong, four girls were interested in him. But he had instant chemistry with Sulgi. As in, the pool scene in Paradise is like genuinely scandalous. Okay, It was so scandalous because what's happening here? Are we allowed to watch this? Nothing's happening but just the, the, the atmosphere of it was insane. And so you may think, oh, okay, well, it works out for them. They're gonna be given the typical bad boy gets the good girl storyline. But apparently not, because guys, it's actually the nice second lead guy who gets the girl in the end. Because, you know, the problem with Jin Yong was that because so many girls liked him, he was always in paradise with them. And that made Sulki insecure. And in came Jong Woo, who only had eyes for Sulki from the very start. And while Jin Yong was forced to go to paradise and, you know, actually get to know other girls and give everyone a fair chance, because that's what you do on a dating show. And people vilified him for this. People were attacking him for this. Like, yeah, it's your fault because you were with other girls. It's like, is that his choice? Was that his choice? Was he supposed to be rude to all those girls who wanted to get to know him? You would attack him for that too. He was just doing the decent thing, honestly. Anyway, this is the part of the show where you can feel the hand of the producers and the editors. Because they edited out the interactions between Jongwoo and Sulki. Like, they got, yeah, the pitiful edit of you feel like, oh yeah, Sulki's never gonna choose Jongwoo because she only has eyes for Jin Yong. But then, you know, there are these moments when Jongwoo has a chance and they edited just, just a little bit, a little bit at a time. And then, in the final choice, suddenly... Sulki chose Jongwoo. Oh my god! I never thought it would happen! Oh! Amazing! But then, like, thinking about it, they just edited out a lot of their conversations. Because Jongwoo was, like, orbiting her, you know? He was, the term in Filipino is, binabakuran siya. 
he made sure no other guy got a chance to talk to her the entire time. Of course, they had more interactions than what we just saw of them. But yeah, they edited a lot of those out for the shock value that Jongwoo was chosen in the end. I just don't think nice guys should ever be rewarded. <laughs> I don't think nice guys should ever be rewarded. And it seems like even in season 1, they had a persistent nice guy character who was rewarded. So, summarizing the show for, for its strengths. I guess it is a strength that they're only on this island for 10 days. And so everything is not that deep. All of their interactions are lighthearted, and so that's why you can feel like they're friends outside of the show, because it never was that deep. Uh, another strength is that the episodes are usually less than an hour and a half, so it's very easy to binge, which is great for Netflix. And another strength is that you get attractive people, but without much of the drama of American TV, because a lot of people don't like the drama. Like, is it possible to make a dating show without that much drama? Yeah, yeah, it actually is possible. Now, the weaknesses are just, you know, the opposite side of the strengths. Because there are only 10 days on this island, there's only so much drama that they can manufacture. And the word manufacture is the key word because it is really forced. I think even the participants talked about how much downtime they had on the show that, of course, we weren't shown because that doesn't fit the supposed dramatic nature of the show. This is not slice-of-life reality TV where we just watch them live day-to-day -day on a deserted island. It really is desolate. It's so hard to come up with anything when there's nothing for them to do. Now, I mentioned that it's a strength that the episodes are so short, but because they limit themselves to one hour to uh, an hour and 20 minute episodes, it is even more heavily edited to try and craft a narrative from limited footage. And because, you know, they're really trying to craft a narrative and we don't really get to spend time getting to know these participants for more than just their initial image and what little interactions they have with each other, this makes the participants seem like archetypes. Like, I'm saying the good, perfect silver spoon girl and the misunderstood bad boy and the persistent but loyal second lead guy and the pitiful second lead female who finds herself with a prince charming who only has eyes for her and we have the class clown who no one sees as a romantic interest. You know, they're archetypes. And people who watched season 1 say that some archetypes are straight from season 1. Also, another comment is that the panel sucks. I'm sorry, I love Lee Dahi, I love Kyuyun, and the other two, I don't know them, but I think they're fine. But they as a panel suck. They have no chemistry with each other, they don't add to the discussion. They're afraid of criticizing anyone, and it's not like, you know, I don't really think the footage they're being shown offers much to be commented on. Mm -hmm. And because of the limited runtime, they can't really delve deep into any discussion. So they don't really add much to the experience. They don't help me understand anything about the participants' interactions with each other or what happened. They don't add anything. And why would we waste precious minutes, precious minutes of this 1 hour 20 minute episode on them when we could be watching what little interesting footage we have of the participants? <sighs> Ultimately, Singles Inferno is... Very surface level. It's a surface level show that gives surface level entertainment. It is limited by its concept, by this deserted island where nothing is going on. And so there's really nothing for the participants to do but flirt with each other. And if they can't flirt with each other and they don't have anyone or no one likes them, 
there's nothing for them to do. It's limited by that, and it's limited by the fact that it won't go full scandalous, but it won't be fully mundane and wholesome. Like, it's just caught in this middle where it can't do anything and reach its full potential. Because its full potential might veer away from what makes it different from American or Western reality dating TV. You know, it, it's it's a tough position to be in and I don't know exactly how they can improve it. But yeah, in hindsight, I didn't realize how little there was to watch on Singles Inferno until I watched Transit Love 2. So before we get into Transit Love 2, I feel like I need to talk about Terrace House to make you understand why I loved Transit Love 2 so much. Okay, so Terrace House was a Japanese, not necessarily dating show. Basically, three pairs of men and women live in a house together. We see their lives, their careers, and their relationships with each other develop. When one leaves, they're replaced by someone of the same sex. And there's no set length of the show. Some tenants can live there for almost the entire run of the show. Some are just there for a few episodes. And the thing with Terrace House is that it's not necessarily a dating show. Some people are here to just, I don't know, promote their careers. And some are just there. They're just there. And Terrace House was so highly praised because in comparison to American reality shows, it felt so natural and light and real. It didn't feel like they were manufacturing drama. It felt like a typical Japanese slice-of-life anime or movie that was also providing insight into Japanese culture, modern culture, and their daily life. The quote-unquote drama came from the fact that people with different personalities, lifestyles, and values were living together and they were being filmed. The drama came from seeing people interact with each other and sometimes get into arguments for, you know, for little things or just because their personalities were clashing. For example, the most iconic incident, I think, on the entire show for the several seasons of the show. There was this guy, Uchi, who was a hairstylist and he received this really high qualities and the highest grade Wagyu beef from one of his clients. And he left it in the shared fridge and then one day the other tenants decided to cook it and eat it without him. Someone even said, you know, hey guys, maybe we should wait for Uchi, maybe we shouldn't do this. But others wanted to cook it and they didn't even leave him any and they even complained. They cooked it like it was, you know, just a normal piece of meat on a pan <laughs> even though there are proper instructions on how to cook that beef to get it to its best condition. And then they said, eh, the beef wasn't even that good. Oh my god. And so, when Uchi came home and found out that they all ate the meat that was a precious gift from one of his clients, they barely even apologized to him and his girlfriend at the time in the house. She knew the story behind the meat. She knew that this is important to him. This was a special gift to him. And she still pushed through with cooking it and not leaving any for him. And Uchi just, just broke down. Like, after he told them, like, it's not just the meat, you know? And when he just wasn't satisfied with their non-apologies, he broke down and hid in his room and just got depressed for a few days. And the other housemates and the panelists made it seem like he was overreacting. But, you know, if I were him, I think I would have felt the same amount of pain and hurt from that whole situation. And 
you know, you may think it's crazy that that is one of the most iconic incidents on the show. Terrace House meat incident. You gotta... It's, it's crazy. But that's the perfect representation of what the show is about. Okay, there were definitely crazier, more scandalous incidents on the show, but this was as normal and as real as it could get. It's really like quintessential Terrace House drama. Okay, so most of this is on Netflix. There's only one, the original season, that hasn't been distributed on Netflix. So among all the seasons that are on, on Netflix, we started with opening new doors, the Karuizawa season. We started with that because it was still airing back then, but I don't think we finished the entire thing. And then we watched Boys and Girls in the City completely. Guys, this is the best season. If you're only gonna watch one season, it's Boys and Girls in the City. Just watch this. Uh, and then we watched Aloha state and toward the end it kind of was boring already and then yeah we watched tokyo 2019 2020 until it ended unfortunately early i won't get into the details of why it ended because it really was so tragic and could have been avoided but that was the downfall of the entire series because now people were totally aware of how the show was heavily edited and influenced by the directors not exactly scripted they didn't you know, say exactly what you were supposed to say, but, you know, talk about this topic or make this seem more like a bigger deal than it is or come off like that. And they would only film a few hours every week. And so the participants, if they wanted to do anything, if they wanted to say anything, it had to be when the camera crew was there. And then we have the panel because Terrace House also had a panel. The panel did not help at times because they would make fun of tenants for their reactions, like laughing at Uchi for crying over the incident. Or they would make comments that vilified one tenant over the other instead of directing the commentary, directing the narrative to try and understand both sides. Like, if that's possible. And because, you know, the participants were gonna live there for an undetermined period of time and they were still living their daily lives and going to work, they could see everyone's reactions to the show and to the versions of themselves that are being presented to the audience. The production team just did not do a good job of protecting the participants from that because of the drama that they needed or the story that they wanted to tell. And so, you know, now that we know the dangers of this kind of reality TV, how do you strike the balance of having, you know, genuinely engaging drama and fun commentators? Like, they were kind of funny at times, you know? Uh, yeah, having fun commentators that add to the show, I really did get some insight on Japanese culture and, you know, what was happening in those interactions from the panel. Yeah, and they didn't feel like they were wasting precious minutes. How do you have that while protecting the participants? Is it possible to protect them while showing supposedly their day-to-day -day lives like that? How can we make something as close as possible to Terrace House, but remove the toxicity and still make it feel as real as possible? Because that's what sets this apart from the Korean dating shows that I've watched. It's not a dating show. It's a daily life show. No matter how, you know, fake it is now, at least when I was watching it, it felt real. And I mean, that's why it was very effective for me. It was a good reality show for me because it convinced me that this is reality. And 
now we move on to the main event, the closest I've gotten to what I felt for Terry's house. Transit Love 2. Basically, in Transit Love 2 or Exchange, on view it's Exchange. There are four pairs of men and women who live in a house together. Secretly, one of their exes is living with them, but that's not revealed to each other and to us, to the audience, immediately. Every night, they're sent a text and they, they text back the producers who made their heart flutter. So when they receive messages, they don't know who sent it necessarily, but they are told if their ex chose them or not. So, you know, connect the dots, figure it out yourself. Sometimes there are prompts that make them go on formal dates with each other, but they can also go on informal dates if they want. And the producers created these convoluted ways to make the participants interact with each other and with their exes anonymously. So, spoiler warning, I will be revealing some of the exes here, but I won't be spoiling the final choices. And trust me, when you watch the show, you will be unsure of their final decisions until the very end. So, I say that this is the closest I've gotten to Terry's house. Because, I mean, similarities-wise, they are living together. I mean, <laughs> there, that's it. Basically, that's it. They live together in a house, except... The drama is not about, you know, the subtle tensions of living with strangers. It's actually about dating. Like, that is the drama of the show. And I think Transit Love 2 solved a lot of Terrace House's issues. Because they only lived together for three weeks. And all of this was filmed months before the commentators even got together and started watching the edited footage with the full storylines and all. So because of that, they were really able to maintain distance, you know, from the participants and control the narrative. Though, of course, they had some tense situations and sometimes people's personalities were coming off in an unpleasant way, it never got too bad and the commentators always tried to direct it positively without being too sanitized. Like, I feel like Singles Inferno 2's panel was just so, so sanitized. They weren't even saying anything anymore. Now, the cast, the cast they got, the, the housemates here, they're amazing. They gelled together instantly. And even, you know, watching them play games and drink together, it was fun. Once again, people loved Terry's house, not just for the chill vibes, but because, you know, you felt like there were real relationships and friendships being formed here. Transit Love 2 also gave that. Like, they lived together for three weeks. They had so much footage and so many stories that they could tell with it. And if people, you know, want drama in their dating shows, but without the American or Western raunchiness and cattiness, I'd say Transit Love 2 is even more dramatic than Singles Inferno 2. Like, even in terms of the drama, they outperformed them on that. Because, you know, just the premise of meeting your ex again, that's dramatic enough. But my god... They really milked all the emotions that they could get their hands on. Like, we got detailed stories of how the couples met, dated, and broke up. We got a conversation between the exes before they moved into the house. And for many of them, this was their first meeting since they broke up. And, you know, they caught up with each other. They reminisced a little bit. We got, you know, all these convoluted setups for them to communicate anonymously. We got these nightly texts where they would wonder, you know, what did my ex mean by texting me today? Or, 
who? Who is my ex texting if they're not texting me? Uh, the producers had them playing mind games with each other, pretending not to know each other, actively dating other people in the same house, sometimes the same room, dating their roommate, and you pretend that you're happy for them that they're going on a date, but to you, it's like, that's my ex. And then they were talking about how much fun they had on their dates, talking about things that maybe they never did this with their ex before. Like, oh, you took that girl skating? We never went skating together, you know? Dramatic stuff like that. And then we'd have these um these interviews, these talking heads, and they would just be crying. And like, oh my god. Oh my god, girl. This is intense. The best part, the best part about this very dramatic emotional show is that I genuinely cannot tell which parts are pushed by the PDs or not. For example, we have this wonderful guy, Wonbin, who is just a complete softie and his first love and last girlfriend was Jisoo, who broke up with him three years ago. So for most of the show, Wonbin was everyone's friend, but no girl was really into him and he wasn't, he's not an active pursuer kind of guy. I don't know why he was here. He was like the closest we got to a Sejong level side character. But we love Wonbin. We all love Wonbin. And then there was a time when Jisoo also stopped pursuing this guy because he was more interested in someone else. So when she and Wonbin were alone, you know, he started comforting her and they actually reconciled and clarified some misunderstandings from the time that they had just broken up. So they were on good terms at that point. And for a while, I thought it was scripted that he was starting to show interest in her again. He was picking her for dates, he was talking about their past, and I thought, oh, they had to do this because they both have no story. And this would, you know, bring them some screen time because they both had nothing going on. And then on one of their dates, Jisoo broke down because she's been like really cold to him the entire time that they were on a date because he chose her unilaterally and she she broke down because uh, she felt like he was always talking about their past relationship and she felt like I'm not the same person that you were so in love with three years ago. And when they were together, she always felt like she was the terrible person because he was so nice, which is a statement that can be unpacked. But okay, let's take her word for it that she just felt terrible because he was so nice. And him always going back to that time, reminiscing on that time, makes her feel like, am I still that terrible person? Uh-huh. And then, you know, Wonbin also realized that he thought he was over her. Yeah, he thought he was done. But then all he had been doing all these years was just reminiscing and reflecting and introspecting and all of that. He had just repressed his feelings for her. And they weren't actually gone. And yeah, I mentioned that at first I thought all of this was scripted. But looking at this entire story with how their personalities have been presented to us, it just makes so much sense, you know? If if this is really all planned out, even the way their characters and their personalities were presented, of course it's planned out. But there's just so much reality to it, you know? And if so, if this was all part of the plan, then they did an amazing job at plotting all of this out and pacing it and editing everything. Now, speaking of plotting and pacing, okay, one of the greatest strengths but possible weaknesses of this show is how long their episodes are. The shortest episode is about an hour and 15 minutes, and the longest is three hours. And there are around five episodes that are three hours long. Towards the end, all of them were at least two hours long. Now, 
long episodes allow you to really, really get to know the participants and their relationships. We watched their dates in like full detail. We saw all their conversations throughout their dates. We really got to see their chemistry and how they are together. Unlike Singles Inferno 2, which was withholding a lot of footage, not just because of the limited runtime, but because they were aiming for shock value, and also because I think a lot of their dates. There was nothing. There was no chemistry there, no drama there. They, it was pointless. And so, okay, back to Transit Love. The seemingly unlimited runtime made them willing to drag out scenes. Like, they were willing to drag out scenes of just the participants crying and reminiscing again and again and fighting with their exes. My god, watching the fights here is exhausting. At some point, it really was just exhausting to watch, but I couldn't stop. Because they want you to see everything, the good and the bad of these relationships, and understand that no matter what decision they would make at the end, it was a difficult choice. This show gave me a better understanding of real-world relationships, including relationships that, you know, you may call it toxic, but honestly, it's just a normal relationship. Now to go into detail on the couple that I cared about the most on this show, I'm sure there are people out there who did not like Nayon and Hidu's story in the show, but I rooted for them. I rooted for them. I can't believe I'm admitting that. Okay, so Nayon and Hidu, I can explain their whole relationship to you. They were an on and off couple for four years that broke up just six months before the show start. And, you know, he was always like scolding her for being clumsy and naive and making her feel like her personality and her actions were so unacceptable because he feels like he's always living the right and proper way. Do you get what I mean? Not in big things, even just in the little things. And I guess Nayon's faults on her end involve her very open book personality. Like, she would rant to her friends about her their relationship issues. And when he do heard about that, he felt uncomfortable around them. Right? Eh, okay. And, I mean, Nayon really is clumsy and has gotten into some incidents in the household because she can get touchy when she's drunk. Nothing serious. I promise this is not even a serious thing. And he feels like he always has to clean up after her. Like she's always out there making a mess somewhere, somehow. But in her perspective, he doesn't have to do that. She's not asking for someone to clean up after her. She just wants him, you know? And if he could just extend some tolerance and some genuine acceptance without condescension. Because he's always saying like, oh, you're like this again. And, you know, it's condescending. It's not like, okay, you're just like this. Whatever. You know, if he could just be a little bit or a lot nicer to her, they already love each other. They can be happy together. But because they were both just so stubborn at this time, fresh from their breakup, they always argued privately, even when they hadn't even revealed the excess to all of the tenants. And then to make things even more complicated between them, they also had other people in the house who they were possibly developing feelings for. But like, honestly, you could feel that Nayon and Hidu's relationship with each other, it wasn't fully over yet. It was both extremely frustrating to watch them, but also it was so real and so understandable. Nayon and Hidu were the true will-they-won't-they couple of the show. And until the very end, I still could not tell what was going to happen to them. Now, the strength of this show is that the premise in itself was dramatic enough. They did not struggle to manufacture drama, okay? And living together for three weeks gave them so much footage and they showed complete characters, not just simple archetypes, okay? They were complete, quote-unquote, characters with complete stories. No one in the cast got, you know, sidelined because they were all still able to give stories to everyone. And 
once again, just with the base story of being exes in this house together, you have a story. You have something to work with. Uh, another strength, the cast had great chemistry immediately. And by the end of it, they all felt like true friends. Like they were all rooting for each other to end up with each other. I, I was really happy for that. Even if, you know, this girl was still in love with her ex and her roommate was dating her ex and that had just been revealed. Like she had to clarify that I really love you. You could really be my best friend. And this situation hurts for me personally, but I love you and we're still friends regardless of the fact that you're interested in my ex. You know, so wholesome. I cannot believe it. And okay, aside from the cast having great chemistry, the panel had great great chemistry as well. It felt like they were a group of friends watching the show together. And the panel was willing to have like deeper discussions about the interactions that were being depicted without being too sanitized, you know, or too critical and, and judgmental about it. And they were actually funny. They could poke fun at the cast because there were funny moments and the editing of the show is really funny. And they were also poking fun at each other, at themselves. Like, you know, there were there was substance, okay? There was substance in, in that panel. Now, the weaknesses of this show, it felt a little too real. It felt like there were real personal emotional stakes. It was not as lighthearted as Singles Inferno 2. And of course, uh, the greatest weakness, which in a K-drama, I'd complain if the episodes were more than an hour and 10 minutes long. But here, I was just watching three hour episodes like it was nothing. But really, they're daunting and they're exhausting. And because they had nearly unlimited runtime, there were portions and maybe storylines that were too drawn out. It's kind of like the Shin PD conundrum. My issue with Shin PD shows. It's amazing when you start. You really feel it. You really love these characters and the way they tell the stories. And then you want more and more and more of it until they give you more and more and more and you get too much. And okay, maybe a little less. <laughs> maybe... Uh, the term is no umay, no umay nako. But you know what? I will definitely take the full spectrum of emotions that I felt throughout the 30 plus hours of Transit Love 2 that I watched over, you know, half-baked entertainment that can't commit fully to what it wants to do. I will take intense emotions over something that's honestly boring. So that's it for me today. I told you that I had a lot to say about Korean dating shows. Did you doubt that I had a lot to say? And okay, I'm sorry to make this once again about writer Park Hyung, the writer of My Mr. My Liberation Notes and Another Miss O. I'm sorry to make it about her, but you know what? Once again, she was right. People are willing to put up with so much for love. People are willing to go crazy and be stupid for love, you know? I need to rewatch another Miss O because of what Transit Love 2 made me understand about relationships. Like, I just didn't know anyone like Oh Hyeyoung in my life. But, you know, now that I've seen Nayon, it's like, wow. People really can be so stupid because they love someone so much. And yet, you know, seems like that's gonna make them happy. If I rewatch another Oh Hyeyoung, I really feel like I will finally understand what she was trying to say with that show. But okay, back to the dating shows. I am eagerly looking forward to Transit Love 3. I think it'll come a bit later than it did from 2022. And I hope that Transit Love 2 wins Best Entertainment Program in the Beck songs. I can't believe even in the Entertainment Program category, I have an opinion. But yeah, I hope Transit Love 2 wins. My god, 
great show. Um, for Zingles Inferno, I hope the third season is more interesting and they fix the format, fix the editing, fix something to make it more entertaining. I feel like it's only popular because, you know, it's on Netflix and yeah, it is, you know, a little bit more wholesome than American or Western TV while still having hot people. But <laughs> this could be more fun. This could be even more fun. And, you know, someday, I hope someone makes a less toxic terrace house. That's all I want. All I want is to just watch people live together. See, even in variety or reality shows, I like slice of life. Like, it's very consistent in my preferences. Or maybe my love for slice of life was kind of influenced by my love for terrace house. Who knows, chicken or the egg. But, you know, anyway, that's it for me today. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you soon. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to leave a comment, like, subscribe, follow, and tell me what you thought about today's episode. See you soon!